I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our series, Exodus. Many modern readers of Exodus can't help but wonder why God was so hard on Egypt with his parade of terrible plagues, especially the tenth and final plague in which the firstborn of Egypt are killed. But another, just as reasonable question is, why was God so merciful to Egypt? church that we call Van City. And for weeks now, we've been in a series all about the second scroll in the Hebrew scriptures, a book that we call Exodus. And I, like many of you, I'm sure, have heard and read and reread and watched the story of Exodus so many times that it begins to feel like uh, blocks of ancient prose. I know each part that's coming before it arrives. But the more I read it and the more I thought about it and the more that we've been studying it these past few weeks, it occurred to me that these are stories about real human beings. And and I found myself this week trying to kind of find them in my imagination so that I can sit in the spaces between the details and think about what it must have been like to be someone that belongs to this narrative and really imagine the world of this incredible story. So... I started in Exodus 1 with what we now know as this terrible decree of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and I imagined an Israelite woman. And this is the story I began to consider to myself. A young Israelite woman gnashes her teeth in the throes of labor pain. This is not the world into which a new mother hopes to deliver her first child, The stories the others have been telling bear down on her as she herself bears down. Those stories, living nightmares. But long before the screaming and the weeping found her village, there had been happiness, even amongst slaves. The only life she'd ever known, like her mother before her and her mother before her. She'd been married and then her belly swelled, and there had been celebration and tears of joy rather than agony, a reprieve in the slave's world of hurt. But today, in labor, the rumors of these terrible times hang like darkness in the air surrounding her labor as Hebrew midwives gather around her, and she pushes, and she hears for the very first time the tiny, trembling cry of her newborn son. And the baby is lifted to her arms, naked and sobbing, and her tears mingle with his, and she is swept up in a kind of euphoric love that only mothers know. And she cradles the tiny boy at her breast and nurses him, and for long moments it seems as if she might drown in love, a love so profound, localized in such a small space, tucked in the crook of her arm, pressed to the warmth of her chest, Until she hears them coming, the Egyptians, drawn to the news of the baby like flies to death, they come, and the blood thrums in her head, and the panic rises in her throat, and she calls to her husband and to the midwives who rush to lead the Egyptians away, but the baby cries out, and in an instant it's happening. Weak though she is, she resists, her midwives pleading, her husband fighting back, but they take the boy, snatching his tiny frame violently. She gives chase until she collapses, and the sound of her son screeching as the Egyptians leave is the last she will ever hear his voice, and she weeps, and she bleeds in the dust. 
And the king of the Egyptians, his decree echoes in the faculties of her skull. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. As if spoken by a dark voice into her heart, she hears it again and again and again. And then neither sleep nor peace could find her beneath the impenetrable dome of her sorrow. She thought of the boy every moment of every day, but the cruelty of time's indifference carried her on, brokenhearted into the next day, and then the next, a terrible blackness swallowing everything. A year passed, and she conceives again. But just beneath the first flutter of joy came the all-encompassing dread, and her husband held her at night as she shivered and sobbed, clinging to her belly as if she could protect the baby from the evil beyond the womb. And she reasoned with her husband that they might flee, But how? Weren't they prisoners in this land? Just slaves, really. If the Egyptians didn't kill them, the desert would. So, for nine months, she prayed until the day came. And she cried out to God that day, as she had for nine long months prior, for a girl. The Egyptians would spare a girl. Please, God, a girl. But as the midwives called for a final push and as the baby emerged, she saw the looks on the midwives' faces and the way they twisted, and she knew then. And she held the little boy and cried, please God, not again, not again. And she hid the boy and with her husband planned their escape, but the Egyptians came once again. And when they took the boy, she wanted to go with him into the waters and like him, breathe no more. The waters, she had been told since she was a little girl, represented chaos and evil. And she thought about the waters of the Nile closing over her head. And the Nile might as well have been the entire sea. And she thought about sinking, about how cold it would be, how dark. And then maybe it would stop hurting, and then maybe she could hold him again. But they took the baby and left the mother as they had so many times before, countless boys stripped from countless begging mothers before her and after her. And another day came, oblivious to her broken heart, and then another. And water became for her a harbinger of death. Even floating in clay pots, it mocked her like rippling pools of evil itself. And the years went by, And the pain of her missing sons became braided together with the pain of never finding herself pregnant again, even when she and her husband became bold enough to try. So her heart became barren and could produce no more prayers. And she, like her mother before her, knew suffering under Egyptian whips and cruelty under Egyptian slavers. And she, like her mother before her, ate tears and dust for her food day and night. And as the terrible years ebbed like sand on stone, she watched as so many friends and cousins and aunts and uncles, her own mother and father, collapse or be beaten to death or were dragged away for punishment, never to return. And she often wished that it was over, but the years mocked her until all hope had long dried. And where once she carried sadness and despair, she only carried numbness and antipathy. And the sea, the waters of chaos and evil, surged over her world in every conceivable way. 
And so, she was much older when the stranger came, a man from the east in Midian, a man of her people, but she did not know him. He gathered the elders of her people together, and he told them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Yahweh is concerned about you, and he has seen your misery, and he will bring you out of slavery in Egypt. And when the word of his announcement reached her, she scowled, the skin gathering across her wrinkled forehead and face, and she felt the familiar sting of tears in the corners of her tired eyes, the audacity of this stranger. Now, when she was an old woman, now God sees what has been done. Now God is concerned. And where before her tired heart felt almost nothing, she now felt a seething animosity to this stranger and to his God. And as, as if to punctuate her acrimony, things got worse because of the stranger, not better. He had marched into Pharaoh's throne room as if he were anything other than no one, and he demanded the release of his own people. The king of Egypt was so insulted by this stranger's foolish daring that he forced her people to gather the straw that was once supplied to them, doubling their labor, and when her people collapsed in exhaustion, they were beaten to the brink of death. And her heart further darkened against this stranger. And then someone told her about the Nile. She had heard the others murmuring about it, the dead fish, the terrible coppery stink, the undrinkable water, the, the corrupted soil no longer made fertile by the water. The Nile, a river that she had kept closed off from her wandering mind, had become blood. God had turned the Nile to blood. And then all the water in Egypt with it, the streams, the canals, even water in jars, it all turned as it had in her mind so many years ago to blood. And then up from the blood bubbled frogs, legions of them, enough to blanket the roads and festoon the Egyptian doorways, enough to infest Egyptian homes, throngs of them, wet skin glistening in Egyptian palaces and beds and food stores. And she watched in disbelief as the world itself seemed to become an undulating tapestry of frogs. And she asked the others what was happening. Was the blood not enough? And her heart went cold within her at their answer. The Lord is pleading with Pharaoh. God was giving the Egyptians opportunities to repent. And then came buzzing gnats and swarming flies. And then the animals of Egypt keeled over and rotted in the field. And the stench of carcasses was conjoined to the stench of festering boils as Egyptian skin swelled red and dribbled fetid pus. And her heart raced for the first time in years as she beheld the horrors of a world that seemed to be unraveling just as the stranger said it would, as God said it would. And the stranger came again to her village and urged them all inside. A terrible hailstorm was coming, and she watched as the sky cast down terrible thudding hunks of ice and flashing bolts of lightning in the distance over Egypt, but stood baffled as not a fleck of ice reached the land where her and her people stood. And her old eyes squinted through the gale at the homes of the Egyptians in the distance, 
and she calculated their cruelty and foolishness. And she almost asked God why he would not simply crush them. But this was too much like a prayer, and so she said nothing at all. And the locust came next, covering the world as the frogs had, until it went black with writhing mass and insect legs, destroying all that was left by the hail. The air hummed with them, a deafening drone like an invasion of soldiers descending on the scattered remnants of Egypt. And when the corruption of their life's water, the infestation of grotesqueries and bane against their livestock could not stir the Egyptians to repentance, when neither yawning sores in their putrid flesh, not thundering boulders of ice, not even an army of devouring locusts could sway them, darkness enveloped Egypt. A darkness so solid as to be completely impenetrable day and night for three long disorienting days. And finally, the stranger appeared again. The cavalcade of divine horror and wonder will now crescendo, he said, and the firstborn of Egypt are going to die. And the Israelite woman's blood curdled in her veins. Where had her nine roots of escape been? Why had she been given no means when those who do evil were given many? And the stranger laid out his strange instructions given by God himself. And so it was that she watched as her people observed the very first Passover. She beheld a strange ache in her chest as they slaughtered the lamb and smeared its blood across their door frames. God would see the blood, the stranger had said. And he would not permit the destroyer to enter their houses or to strike their firstborn down. After nine miracles, God was still providing a way out. Long after the events of that dark night of the destroyer, when a Hebrew author would put sacred pen to sacred papyrus, inspired by the Spirit of God himself to tell this sacred story with no word left to chance, the author would write this, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pasach you. A word understood by scholars of ancient Hebrew now and then by both Greek and Aramaic translators to mean protect or defend. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will protect you. From what? He will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. As the Hebrew author, the literary mastermind, immortalized this incredible story, the author seems to say that it will be Yahweh who strikes down the firstborn of Egypt until the violent agent is identified specifically not as Yahweh, but as the destroyer. For centuries, Hebrew writers and readers interpreted the destroyer to be the Satan or some violent spiritual entity distinct from Yahweh, but nonetheless loosed by him in some sense. Because they, like that Israelite woman, had been taught something very hard for our modern minds to comprehend. That dark and terrible forces of chaos surround God's ordered goodness of creation, like an oasis with desert on all sides. And that there are times when created things 
so persist in their unwillingness to receive God's good and gracious reign over that oasis that God grieves and he relaxes his protection so that agents of chaos and decreation are allowed to needle the bubble of our otherwise ordered world. And those so insistent on evil are given what they so badly want, life without God, or put another way, death. And so, after centuries of patience, and after nine explicit warnings and miraculous signs and pleas for repentance, Yahweh loosens his grip on order, and the destroyer enters the homes of Egypt to steal and to kill and to destroy. And even then, not without restraint, Yahweh will, re- will protect every house sheltered in the blood of the Lamb, be it Hebrew or Egyptian. But enough is enough. The time has come. I will bring judgment, God said, on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. For Yahweh is not allowing chaos to overwhelm and destroy more than mere human systems of evil and oppression, but spiritual systems of evil and oppression as well. And so the destroyer went through Egypt and Pharaoh releases the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, just as God and the stranger had said he would. And that Israelite woman followed behind the stranger, a man called Moses, as they wandered into a land and a future both unknown, and she puzzled within herself as they went. She was still angry, angry that God had not rescued her children, angry he had not delivered her or her people all these long years before, and angry at his patience with Egypt. She was angry that he included them in his mercy, that he provided them with warnings and protection from the destroyer should they only receive both as free gifts Where was her protection when she needed it? Why had he not warned her when the Egyptians were coming or provided a path on which to flee? And the waters that chaos and evil had long been over her head, all her life drowning her. And as she wandered with her people, now free from slavery in Egypt, liberated by the stranger and by his God, Israel arrives at the Red Sea, and she remembers her suffering as if she had ever forgotten it. And as they looked out on the water, she heard the thundering drone of Pharaoh's chariots, hordes of his troops barreling through the dunes toward hopeless, helpless Israel. And her people shouted, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? They said to the stranger, to Moses, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die like this in the desert. And with the oppressor she had known all her life, both behind and before her, Egypt and the sea, that evil and chaos. She closed her eyes, and she listened as the hammering of hooves synchronized with the drumming of her old heart against her ribcage. And she breathed deep of sand and dust, and she thought, maybe all my sorrows end here in pitiful tragedy. And she shivered when she felt the spray of water on her face, 
And she opened her eyes to behold the sea itself split in half before her eyes, helpless against the terrible majesty of the God of Israel. Between the great walls of obedient water was the dry ground, and her people passing through it out of chaos and oppression and into something else. And so she rose and walked, and she saw then that God did not engineer her suffering, but he did design her redemption, and it was glorious to behold. And as she passed through the sea, her heart began to thaw, an old callus warmed and disintegrated. And she looked as she went, and she saw a young Egyptian mother hemmed in on all sides by Israelites, a woman who had accepted God's pleas and left everything she had known. The Egyptian woman was holding a baby boy to her chest as she passed through the broken sea. And she felt the familiar sting of tears in the corners of her tired eyes, tears not of pure sorrow nor pure joy, but something else. And for the first time, she was much younger, and the Israelite woman smiled and began to pray. The story that the Israelite woman lived was told again. It was written and read for hundreds of years, a thousand and more, so that every Israelite child would know each of its twists and turns just as they would reenact that Passover meal year in and year out. Israel was, all those generations later, still waiting to be rescued, not from an Egyptian slave driver, but from the serpent of Genesis and all that it represents. The Passover acknowledged generations of Jewish pain and struggle and hope and life, and it brought that story of salvation and hope and longing into the present around a dinner table with family and friends who belonged to the same story, who were waiting with the same hope and anticipation. And then one day, a man called Yeshua Manatsarat, which means Jesus, who is from Nazareth, redefined the Passover meal around himself. He was born into a time when his people were oppressed, and he, like Moses, escaped a genocide of baby boys. He wandered in the desert, and he came to his people with news of liberation. And Jesus understood himself as the lamb whose blood would be provided as protection against the destroyer during a time when chaos had been loosed in the night. But this is the hour, Jesus said as he was being arrested, when darkness reigns. God had, in Jesus, continued his battle against both human and spiritual systems of evil on earth and in the spiritual realm when God is at long last revealed as more than a distant puppet master who engineers plagues in a theater of spectacle, but that God is the one who comes low to creation itself and allows himself to fall before death and the destroyer in our place so that the great ocean of your pain and your tragedy, past, present, yet to come, will be rent like a thin curtain 
and the blood of God himself poured in self-sacrificial love for you will be the dry ground on which you pass through the renewal of all things. Exodus is only the second scroll in a very long redemption story, and we're still in it. But God has already demonstrated the epic of his love in his son Jesus, the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the chaos and evil of your own life, the things that you've done and the things that have been done to you are not an ocean too powerful for the blood of Jesus to split in half that he might provide passage from here to redemption. What waters are up to your neck? What secret, what sin, what pain, what anxiousness, what idleness, what barren spirituality that chokes your heart and drives your prayers is the water that threatens to engulf you. Let it be torn in two by the great saving work of Jesus. Tonight, and in the age to come. Would you guys stand with me as we begin to worship and reflect? Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.